Hello and welcome everybody to the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. Join my father and I as we discuss relevant and meaningful ideas and values inspired by the weekly Torah portion. Our goal is to open our discussion to you in the hopes that it will give you something to think and reflect on, as well as be another interesting conversation that you can have with your family, friends, and peers. So let's delve right in. Hey, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. So what are we going to be discussing today? Today we're going to be discussing in on the eve of Shavuot, which has to do with the receiving of the Torah, and the most defining aspect of Jewish survival, Jewish life, Jewish existence, the existence of Torah, but synonymous with the existence of Torah, I believe, is also the existence of Jewish education. Jewish education is synonymous with the uh, resilience that Judaism has shown over the millennia. So we're going to talk about Haredi education in Israel because it's a huge topic. Oh baby, hot button topic. Yeah, it's a huge topic. And yesterday, actually, I was interviewed on Israeli television. I didn't know that. To talk about it, yeah. Ooh. Khan Chadasrei. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a nice conversation, and I'll use some some stuff that I some that I mentioned yesterday, but also there's some stuff that I didn't say that I'd like to mention here. So let's start from the beginning. We'd like to talk about, I think, some points that are important to clarify about education in general and Jewish education in particular, and what Haredi education means when we use that term in Israel. Um, well, well, education. Well, I was thinking before you go into that, maybe you can um, enlighten those who do not know what you mean by Haredi education, what you mean by Haredi education. Like, what does that include? What doesn't it include? Why is right. it different than any other education? Right. So the, 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 the Haredi education in Israel and why it's a hot button topic basically means Education that does not include secular subjects. Secular meaning any subject except the learning of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, um, this is not a new thing in the history of the Jewish people. Um, schools, as we know them today, perhaps look different than what they once were, but the idea of schooling, which means the idea of having children from different households get together to be instructed together um, is something that in our tradition dates back to about 2,000 years ago. Not more, but about 2,000 years ago, a little bit less. Um, and it was not considered to be uh, the most prefer- preferred way of educating children, because in the Jewish tradition, parents should educate their children. Mm-hmm. There is a injunction, there's a mitzvah to educate children. And I think that's what I meant when I said, and that's, not, and that's not what I think what I meant, that is what I meant when I said <laughs> <clears throat> what makes Judaism different and what gives it its lasting, I think, existence, at least in, in one way, in one, for one reason, is because of the 
perpetuating of study, which is a very real uh, process in a child's life, in a person's life. And the idea that um, we, we equate study with religion and we make study into a very, very essential part of religion is basically what gives the religion its um, very special character. So there's a mitzvah to, to teach and there's a mitzvah to learn. And that kind of guarantees <clears throat> the continuity which is uh, something, like I said, was supposed to be, like real education should be, and this is why I'm really bringing it in, a very individual process, a very individualized process. There should be nobody in the world that knows you better than your parents, and therefore they're the ones that are entrusted with the education of the child, even if it means them sitting with you all day or whatever for significant point parts of the day to teach you whatever it is that they're teaching you. If it's religious instruction, which is really what the Torah is talking about, that they should know how to read, and that they should know how to uh, understand texts and learn texts and be taught what the texts mean, starting from the Tanakh to oral Torah, to the, the Mishnah and the Gemara and Halacha, right? all those things really should be taught from parents to children. <clears throat> now you'd, you'd wonder, like in today's modern world, how in the world was that? How could that ever be possible? One second. How could it ever be possible? Just logistically, for it to be individual. Yeah, like, just logistically, like how parents have to work. So how are they supposed <clears throat> to teach their kids? Right, and who says that the father is the best instructor? It, it doesn't really, you know, it, it perhaps it was it's a lofty idea, but it it's there. It's a mitzvah, mm -hmm. but it, the mitzvah was not necessarily um, restricted to parents. So it, it, there was wiggle room for it to be understood that the best person should be chosen to be the instructor. It doesn't have to be the parent, as long as the parent takes responsibility to make sure that it's done, right? Kind of like other mitzvot that parents have vis-a-vis um, -vis their children. Like teaching them to swim? Right, like, right, like you know, preparing them for the world, and also the, the ritual mitzvot of like Brit Milah and, Kar and Pidyon Aben, huh. and, <clears throat> and getting a child married, right? Th these are things that parents um, um, have responsibility towards their children, Make sure that they are prepared for the world in the sense of having a, a livelihood, right? Those those types of um, obligations. So when it comes to teaching, also it's the same. So you can imagine that back in the day there were parents that were teaching their children, but sometimes they would find somebody else, a malamid, to teach their child, and maybe if it was too costly, they would do it together with somebody else. But um, starting about two thousand years ago, with a particular injunction from it was ascribed to somebody named Rabbi Yeshua ben Gamla. Um, we are told that because of the very grave situation of the Jewish people and very precarious with the Roman oppressions and ultimately the destruction of the temple, the dispersion and the state of the Jewish people made it so dire to make sure that children would get educated because very often children were orphaned or just spread out in different places, you know, totally isolated. So the best way to to accomplish community and learning at the same time was through schools. Mm -hmm. So schools were uh, created as uh, an injunction of the, of the Chachamim, that the, you need, every city needs to have a school and where religious instruction takes place. And that's all we know of it for thousands of years. And what other kind of education children were getting 
normally it was very practically minded, just like in all systems in the world, it was about learning how to uh, gain a trade. Right. It was learning how to create a livelihood for yourself. So all instruction, basically, besides whatever religious instruction there was, would be focused on uh, making sure that the child doesn't starve in their lifetime and they have something to do. Mm. They, they learn a trade. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> you can imagine that sometimes that was done formally, sometimes it was done not formally. But that is still the responsibility of a parent, and that's part of our tradition, the Jewish tradition. So when did the, the, the what we call what we're going to call the secular, you know, which is basically everything else except the learning of religious instruction, become part of the formal tradition of schooling? There's the formal tradition of schooling, meaning religious instruction. When did the non-religious instruction become part also of the formal instruction of schools? We're talking about two different things, I'm saying. One, one thing is Jewish education, and then as history progressed, then there's also things, formal schools, government schools, no, no, schooling I mean in that. general? No, no, no. no. I not mean, that. What I'm saying, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying formal education, meaning the injunction to create schools for every city where Jews live. I mentioned Rabbi Shua ben Gamla. Yeah, but I'm not understanding your question. Jang, first. When did it also involve non-religious education? Okay, fine. So the non-religious education piece was never really formally part of it at all. It just became so in the beginning due to pressure from outside sources. Right. That, that's what I was going to say. I think it, you can't kind of have that in a vacuum. I think that with. I don't know, I'm going to say probably around enlightenment, when education became important, then there's more and more pressure for people who want to be part of civilization and culture and whoever it is that they live. There's this understanding that if you want to be part of the culture, then you have to know what's up. And part of knowing what's up is reading the language, not just Hebrew or Yiddish, uh, math, knowing science, history. It just became part of being an educated person. Yeah, uh, I mean, governments had their reasons, but then the, the Russian government, you know, in the early 1700s was pressuring the Jews, or the middle 1700s were pressuring, pressuring the Jews to, to be part of society, right? In other words, that was spurred on by, uh, you know, different types of beliefs, but maybe a lot of it was paranoid beliefs about the Jews, you know, sticking to themselves and whatever it was, but... So supposedly, not only there, but in other places, there became more and more pressure for schools to include some kind of a secular curriculum. At least they should learn the language and they should be like more integrated into society. It wasn't like today, if you jump together, if we jump together like a couple hundred years, <clears throat> today's world, you're talking about where governments are actually subs uh, giving subsidies, they're subsidizing, the schools, so they have a say into what you do because they're giving you money. So they're saying, look, if the taxpayers' money are giving you money, then you should at least be what we consider to be the best um, contributor to society as possible. If you're a contributor to society, then you're a person who can integrate into society. If you're a person that's living on the outline, if you're living on the, uh, on the outside of society, 
then you're not going to be a person who is who taxpayers are going to want to pay for because you might end up being more of a burden on society than a contribution to society. Right. Which brings us a little bit to the problem of people viewing Haredi education as creating a population of leeches, people who don't yeah. contribute back to society. Yeah. Um, right. So that jumps us ahead into this, basically the situation where where the government is saying today, and this is the particular aspect of why uh, we were interviewed yesterday at our school, is because we belong to a system of mamach schools, which is mamachti Haredi. And mamachti Haredi schools include secular education in a serious way, according to the demands and the requirements of the Misrat HaChinuch, you know, with some leeway. Um, and the government, of course, is very happy about it because... When there's secular education, then the children basically would be enabled to go on to high schools that will offer them the chance to get a, a high school diploma. <clears throat> and the high school diploma is something that's recognized by the, um, the university. So if they want to go to university, they can get a job. I mean, they can study to, to be able to be more prepared to get a job. Essentially getting what here in Israel they call a bagrut, which is a high school like GPA here in Israel, is the, is the <clears> stepping <throat> stone to being able to be part of civilization, contributing to society, getting a job, making money, paying taxes eventually. Right. So that's like the, the basic requirements. And from what we understand is that most Haredi education, right, because your school is, is a special um, is a special kind of outbranch of Haredi education, but most Haredi education, being that there's no secular subjects and they're only learning Torah, finish high school or yeshiva really, it's not high school, um, having learned only Torah and therefore have no way to go on, get a job, they don't have high school education, they don't know any secular subjects, and therefore we see that most of them either have the only thing they know is still... Well, they don't have a way to get a job. They can get a job. They do get jobs. But it's lower income jobs. But for the most and... part, I, was, I actually had this interesting interaction. I was giving someone a tramp. <coughs> I was giving someone a, a tramp <coughs> from the Tzomet. Um He was a, you know, probably, I think he was 16, 17. A tramp. A tramp means a, um, when you pick someone up in your car and you drop it off somewhere else. Right, for whoever's listening, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like hitchhiking, yes, that's what it is, that's the word. Um, so he lives here in Ganayalo, which is an, a very Haredi neighborhood that we live next to. Um, and I asked him, I'm like, okay, so you're in, you're in uh, yeshiva, what are you planning on doing later? Are you planning on working? And he looks at me and he says, chas v'chalila. He's like, you know, God forbid, I would never do that. And I'm like, well, why not? He's like, because I have to learn Torah. I'm going to go into Kolel. I was like, oh, so interesting. I was like, I really wanted to kind of press him a little bit about like, well, how are you planning on supporting a family or, you know, but I I'd already, his house already came into view. <laughs> and you also know how he's going to answer that question. Right. Also, it's a little bit of a losing, losing argument to begin with, but I just found it very just that is the view in the Haredi world working is not something that's considered valued chas v'chalila you should have to work if you're a nebuch and you you can't make it then you're you'll be forced to do the work you know 
you know, woe unto you if you have to work and not study Torah every day um, all the time. So I think that in itself is also a very big part of education that isn't necessarily, when you say like institution or Haredi education, may not necessarily um, be something that you think about because it's not necessarily like a subject, but I think that's a very big, um, not, bias isn't the word I'm looking for, it's a very big uh, value that is in the Haredi world, which is working isn't important. You want to learn. So kola life is the most, it's the highest, most hush of thing you can do. And if you can't make it and you're like a poor, you know, you, you really just can't make it and you can't, you can't hack it. So then, then you're going to have to go work and we'll, we'll pray for your soul kind of thing. Right. Well, so, so education in Haredi terms basically means only religious education. That's what we're saying. And um, the, you can have two views of why you might consider it important to also include secular subjects. One would be practical, right, which is pretty much what everyone in the Haredi world might be willing to consider. Of course, it's not such an easy sell because those, there are those that will say, look, if the whole point is practical, like it once was in the world. It's not such a foreign idea, right? The idea of enlightenment, you know, you know, and getting a broader education so that you have broader education and more a broader worldly. and more worldly is not necessarily a value for for people who are not seeing it at all as something that expands you and your mind. It's just something that needs to be done for whatever reason, or so, so you be have a better job, a better way of getting a job. So if it's seen that way, there are those that will argue, look, uh, we don't need to taint the minds of the children if we could really give them just religious instruction and keep them so much more focused on religious instruction. Um, when, it com when it comes to the time after high school, if they see they're not going to be able to hack it, you know, the life of uh, just studying Torah... So then there are some options that they can do. Then they can try to, you know, maybe jump in and, and get uh, Bagrut, get a, a, a high school diploma later. They can, there are courses that they can take and then they can take some computer courses and things like that. Or they can just do what most people do, which is have a friend who will hire you. And then if you're, you know... If, if, you become a hacker. Yeah, if you're if you're a guy who knows how to work the system, so like like I know the person who built our neighborhood is not somebody who had any education, high school or um, university education, and now they're making millions of dollars, you know, selling buildings and stuff. So there are people that can wing it and do well. So if so be it, you know, for those people that really want to take that option. But why should we? Um, so to speak, like contaminate the the minds of children that can learn only religious education, fill their mind with so much more religious education, if, after all, um, that's not really uh, our goal for education in general. Education is about religious instruction. Okay, that's, that's the position, that's the Haredi position. I mean, it could be said in different ways and a little bit stronger, 
uh, with terms with like you using religious terminology, but basically that's that's what it is. Okay, so I can hear all that, but what what I believe is that there's there's an essential problem here. There's a couple of essential problems. One is that this idea of having only religious instruction needs to be there needs to be a, a reckoning with <clears throat> why does it why is the world view of let's say those that insist on only Haredi education why is their world view have to be that this is the only thing that could be in other words why would they oppose the introduction to sec- of secular subjects in um, schools also, which is the issue that they were interviewing me about, really. Because there are plenty and plenty and plenty of Haredim that have, re, re, you know, maybe probably the majority, the vast majority, I don't know, the vast majority, but a majority still, that do not receive any um, secular education. Certainly nothing that would re, re, meet the requirements of the state. So maybe they do a little math when they're in grade school and that's it. Uh, no language or anything like that. So... So um, they, they, um, the reason why they uh, would, uh, would insist on that type of education is clear, like, like I said. Um, but the question is, why would they be anti the possibility of having other types of education? So I think that's, this is the cru- one of the cruxes of the issue, because why would they you know, fight politically uh, or, or other ways to make sure that there is no such school that does offer secular education? Well, it's interesting because before, and I wanted to ask you about this, you introduced this concept of tainting the minds with secular information. So well, that, that's what they'll believe. It's right. So taint- what what does that even mean? If if you were to explain <clears throat> it from their position, what does it mean? Why does why does secular information taint the mind? Does that mean it's inherently? Well, it's yeah. I, if you sp- I, I think if you spoke to like a more of a open minded person, they wouldn't say. Even assuming, besides all the suspicions about what textbooks could look like and how they could be anti-Torah and things like that, all those suspicions, but even if they went through all of the subjects and made sure that there wasn't any anti-Torah messages, which there doesn't need to be at all for it to be a good English book or a good math book or a good science book, science being a little bit more challenging, of course, but... um, they would still say it's not tainting in the sense like it's dirty, but they would say it's like, what what message are we telling the children? We're telling them that like this is just as important as this. This is what they worry about, right? Mm-hmm. This is just as important as this. So how, how are we going to get all the the masses to understand that there's nothing except Torah, right? So they they're worried about that. They're now, I would say also their, their view is more of a, and this is what I was really trying to get at, their antagonism to it existing is, especially in Israel, because Israel is, is, a, is our society. It's, it's a society, so there's a certain unspoken turf war going on, which is whose ideas are going to be most um, prevalent and most um, incorporated into the minds of the people of society. So there is that understanding of like um, that what we feel to be correct should be like pan, you know, 
applied should be applied across the 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 aisles as much as possible pen centric whatever the word is <laughs> the point is it should be it should be applied as much as possible because if not then the position that we believe to be correct is weakened right so that that's like rationally speaking what i think is going on between the lines right it's not necessarily said that way but basically it's about, I don't know if this is word, this word, you know, conjures up other things, but it's about a hegemony of ideas. It's like I've never heard of that word. Hegemony? It's no. like a, a controlling everybody's minds. It's like a, it's ideas to control. Yeah, that's not <laughs> what hegemony means, but a hegemony means a total control. So, so the point is, is that, um, uh, okay, that's, that's their position, right? And that's why they're a thing. Now, so the need to be so strongly opposed to secular education is because there needs to be a very strong emphasis on the value of learning Torah. And God forbid we should think that learning secular subjects is any is, is the par. same or even better than Torah. Or is on par, right? Now, mm-hmm. I still believe that that's wrong. And because of two things. One is... Um, if there, if the discussion already is already in the air, should it be or shouldn't it be? That means that somebody that's representing a significant amount of people is bringing it up, right? And that somebody, it doesn't matter who it is, but it certainly represents a large swath of Jews that live in the world who are also very committed to the importance and the centrality of Torah, who do receive a secular education, and those are namely the Jews who live outside of Israel, right? So to say that now, when more and more Jews coming from outside of Israel, coming to Israel, should all of a sudden assume that the study of secular subjects means, by definition, that we're saying that Torah is on par with other subjects, is clearly not their experience, mm-hmm. right? And, and that, so that's argument number one. In other words, it's, 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 it's not seeing... The fact that the fact the fact that the that this idea is coming up and the idea is very much represent well represented by a large amount of Jews, to say that in Israel we're not going to do it because it's going to influence you know the larger thing is basically a way of saying we don't want to deal with we don't want to deal with this with this population, <clears throat> right? Now besides that, there's another point at work which is children themselves. Um, since education now is massive, so um, the only way you can answer the real needs of education with just religious instruction is by making religious instruction so expressive that you're going to be able to reach the large numbers of children that are going through your education. But if it's not expressive, which means there's very little expression, there's only basically to be to simplify it. There's only like the whole point is that you could get to be a good learner of Gemara and all whatever that entails, right? There's a very there's a large uh, f- opening of the funnel that's uh, spread out for all the children to come in, and the and the end of the funnel is a very small narrow um, exit where. This, the, the chances of a child really feeling that they're successful in the system is very, very reduced, mm. right? Children today are not just willing to just go along with it, 
you know, and, and say, well, okay, I guess I just didn't do it that well, but, I, you know, I'm still very connected to the idea of Torah being central in my life. Or children's... Because it was never fleshed out to be that way. It was all about being a good learner in Gemara. So if you didn't do that, then you suck at religion and you stink. Right. I mean, also, there's, a, there's, very, there's very little, very often, there's very little expression of what it is that they're doing. So there's very little cognizance on behalf of the child. There's very little respect, I would say, towards the child today um, who can handle explanations of what it is that they're doing and be more cognizant of what they're doing and why they're doing it. Because there's a certain fear of opening it up to the children as if it was a debate, which is part of the general problem of the super Haredi population, which is that they're afraid to open up topics. They'd rather remain topics, topics to be ambivalent as if everyone will do it happily just because, because that's the way the system is and the system works this way. In order to be in the system, you need to just be part of the system. But if you open up and talk about it, so then you're giving it credence or to other possibilities. And what might end up happening is that the, I might end up leaving. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, what happens today is the exact opposite. And this is part of the problem. The problem is that children are coming into the system. The world is big. The world is large. And the large, big world outside is much more part of the reality of children today. And millennials, I would say, in general, don't do well with just doing stuff be just because. It's not just kids today and, and adults also are, not, are much less likely to just enter into a system and do what the system, so to speak, asks of them without, you know, questioning it. They're anyway questioning it. They're anyway wondering. And if, on the other hand, there's no personal feeling towards the individual child, there's no personal feeling to the individual child that gives him the sense that he can express himself and be successful in different ways and ways that talk to him. So you're dealing with a, uh, you know, you're dealing with a societal explosion. Mm -hmm. and, and this is really what's happening. What's happening is you're dealing with people that are holding on to very um, old ways, I would say, of education, which is true across the board. It has nothing to right. do Even with in our society. Everywhere. Yeah, uh, everywhere especially today after what we've seen the last 10, 20 years. Um, but added to that, it's religious education. So really what I would say is that if you really want to protect the, the, the essence and the importance of religious education, you need to make sure that your education is speaking to the children. And of course, when people are in their own worlds, they think, look, it's working, it's working. They don't see what, they, what you can't see. That's not, mm -hmm. being, that's not being surfaced. Right. But, but it's clear that and I can you know show you some studies that I can just show you afterwards or maybe you could just mention the studies that people can look them up okay, well, we can put a, them the, in the show notes there's an, there's an organization called IDI.org that writes a lot about um, Haredi world and the um, it's not it's they are sociologists really so it's not so it's just academic stuff it's not they don't come with any particular bent they're just reporting on what they see and you see the numbers are quite, uh, uh, I would say, alarming. It depends, but it depends on where you're, what you're, how you're looking at it. it the, the numbers are impressive as far as desertion from Haredi world, as far as you know how what Haredi education system suspects or expects to inculcate into the children is actually being inculcated, and you're just seeing a, tre a trend and a tendency to be less and less. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, 
even according to their own standards, it's becoming less and less successful, less and less efficient. Which makes sense because, like you said before, the world is so open at this point and there's so much out there that even if you live in Mayasharim, the kids are still going out and seeing more, so much more that needs explanation. And it's it's interesting, I was reading um, a book, uh, what's it called? From Brene Brown, um, which I'm forgetting the title now. Um, but it's something about uh, Daring Greatly, Daring Greatly. Um, she's an amazing author. I like her a lot, but, um, she's writing about her main topic is vulnerability and shame. And she is yet she, I was one in yesterday's, um, chapter that I was reading. She says something very interesting about vulnerability, which is the people who think that they are invulnerable are the people who are highest at risk for being, um, hit by whatever it is that they're trying to ignore exists. Um, which makes a lot of sense because someone who isn't aware of the dangers out there is less equipped to deal with them when they hit you. Um, so in this case, the, we have the Haredi community, which is adamantly trying to ignore and, and not see everything that's going on around them and trying to be very insular, so much so that when the outside world does penetrate the walls of their safe house, they have no way to deal about, no way, no way to go about them, and then people leave because there's just no explanation, there's no context there's no frame so the only thing left to do is to go like well i'm out of here right uh I, I, we could also reference this i have to look up but i have it somewhere on my notes uh, an article written by another uh academic called uh, the ambivalence in Haredi society mm-hmm. i think the key word is ambivalence um when when children are raised to believe that there's an ambivalence to things that they deep down especially as they grow up know are real things that they have to face as being part of a society. So you come to two conclusions, one of two conclusions. You either realize that the reason why we're being ambivalent to it is because we're really not part of this society. So therefore, the message is basically we live on as outliers to the society, which, of course, is not good. Mm-hmm. And, and because it allows you to, like people do, you know, when you're... Not, you don't have skin in the game, so then you throw stones. You know, like you have, you don't like this, you don't like that. You know, you know, you're not part of it. The mm-hmm. greatest crit- crit- critics of every system are the people that aren't part of the system. Mm-hmm. They just feel attacked or by a system, or there's some kind of a internal wedge, you know, that they are self, you know, applying to themselves um, that that doesn't allow them to to feel part of what's going on and feel the struggle. And, uh, and, and there's like this kind of self-hate kind of thing because they're, 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 they really feel deep down that they really are part of it, but they're making believe that they're not part of it. So that the ambivalence creates that, which is really bad. Or the ambivalence just goes much more internally into their own psyches that says like, you can see something that's right in front of you, but just ignore it. It's like really important, but you can just ignore it. That's the way you live life. You just live life ambivalently. That's on a personal level. That's pretty bad too. It's like, like you, you just shut it all out. Then. Yeah, your you marriage could just, be falling to pieces, right, yeah, but you're no like, matter. okay, you know, you just uh, we don't touch that. You know, it's like it, it's related to. And once your person lives a life of ambivalence, any any type of association that's uncomfortable all of a sudden becomes a reason to be ambivalent about it. Right. It doesn't just stay in in the confines of let's say going to the army or you know being part of secular subjects or whatever. It's it's also anything that right. 
I don't want to be a part of, I could go like, oh, no, we don't. Right. So a perfect example of this, this is a good dovetail into what we're talking about, is secular education. Because secular education in and of itself, if you corner somebody who is very, very ardently Haredi and you, and you say, look, is there anything wrong with learning math? Not, nobody's going to be able to say there's something wrong with learning math or English or science. If you, right? you, on the mm-hmm. contrary, you can say these are all wonderful, uh, beautiful uh, parts of wisdom that God created in the same world that he created other things, just like the understanding of Torah. And understanding of Torah is, under, is basically using all kinds of other uh, mental capacities like logical deductions and other you know, higher thinking that are also part of other sciences. It's not, it's not something in and of itself that's contaminated. It's not dirty. It's good, right? So, of course, anybody in their right mind won't argue with that, right? They're not going to argue with that. So what, what are they going to say? They're going to say the things like we said before, right? But... The, the, the problem becomes that, um, it, you know, when, when, when you don't offer these things um, and they become uh, like there's an, this ambivalence that's created towards them of like, why aren't we learning secular subjects? Well, we, don't, we, don't talk, we, don't, we don't do it. We don't do it. Okay, well, you don't do it. So then in the minds of those kids that are like taking that message of like, we just don't do it. It's like there's an ambivalence. They start creating other reasons to justify it in their mind that because of mild associations, they all, all of a sudden, instead of telling you that it's okay and that there's nothing wrong with it, they'll start saying with, to you that it's not, there is something wrong with it. Mm. And they'll start, they'll start creating castles in the sky to protect a position that was never dealt with because really the truth is that there's nothing wrong with it. Oh. So, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. they'll start saying it's possible because, it's a, you, know, because you can get kfira. And because uh, the thing, it's like some things you can learn about, you know, what was called Chachmati Vanit in the times of the Rishonim. They were talking, you know, should a person learn Chachmati Vanit or not? Now, Chachmati Vanit was basically a catchword for philosophy. So in the days where philosophical ideas were very rarely discussed, on, you know, in a broad section of, uh, of, of, of the people, people, people in the street who were scraping to get a, get a living, they weren't talking philosophically. All of a sudden you say, look, let's talk philosophy. You know, when you have your five, ten minutes at, at home before between milking the cows, you, you, you don't have the proper setting to, you know, so you can understand this is going to be something that's dangerously uh, encroached on because people might get the wrong ideas. And for no reason, they don't really get enlightened by these ideas. It's like a cheap trick. Mm-hmm. So, so that type of thinking starts being extended to all kinds of things that there's ambivalence about. Like, oh, it's like you see in the Rishonim that they were warning about Chachmat Ivanit and learning secular education. So this is also, it's, also, it's all puzzle. It's all puzzle. Because people don't want to think about it, right? Because why didn't they want to think about it? Because they were taught to treat it that way, that we don't talk about it. When people come to the conclusions of why they don't talk about it, they start creating their own castles in the sky about why it is that they can't do it. And if they can't do it, it's already, it's already forbidden. Right. You know, and they, that, so that's, that's, um, that's a serious distortion. But there's, but there's one more point that I want to make that, um, besides just reinforcing the last point, which is before we get into the last point, the third point, is that I think by not offering options, um, you're ignoring the needs of education, the real needs of education. education is to prepare children 
to, to be the best at what they can do in their lives with the set of talents and abilities that they have and realities that they have. And to just assume that all children should do this. In today's day and age where, where you're not really opening up to children to anything else, very, very little anyway. I mean, I'm not saying it's all like this. I'm not saying this is not a monolithic entity. Right? There are certain schools that understand the need and they'll bring them out and do farming and get them to doing things that they think that according to the Torah are good things to, lo- to know. Right? But just stop to buy a math book or buy an English book because that's what people, you know, schools buy math books and English books. They're like, well, we should teach all the things in this book. Okay, so if you're going to be on top of the, of the, of the education and to that extent and you're going to really make your own curriculum, okay, go right ahead. But I don't have a problem with that. The problem is that when people are the, create this ambivalence about it, as if like we're not going to change it because it takes too much or it's too much thinking, and to like rechange the whole thing and to make like the just the religious part so expressive that every kid is going to find their way, which is based in fear. Right. So then the children not only get that fear and ambivalence, but they also are limited, and they suffer. And when they suffer, they a lot of times, especially today, they look back and they say it was because of the horrible poor education that we received where I couldn't find, the child would say, I couldn't find myself at all in this thing because there was nothing that I did well. Because there was only like one or two things that you can do well. And I'm not good at that. I need to sit hours and hours and hours. I'm just not, I'm not interested in that. I, if, if somebody would have given me a cool math book, like I would have done that well, or maybe an instrument, I would have done that well. I had to discover that when I was 22. Like the, 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 the schools could have opened me up to that. And chances are, the interesting thing is, if these educators would realize this, Chances are that if you open them up to that and you develop their skills with, with, within something that they're, they feel that they're accomplished or accomplishing it and it makes them feel good, that like dopamine, so to speak, or that charge that your brain gets, even, you know, I'm talking on a physiological level, is something that in and of itself stimulates more learning and more education. Mm-hmm. Because children will repeat, we as human beings will repeat the things that, touch our pleasure centers so if you've gotten that pleasure moment by in a learning context of whatever it is that you're learning it's much more likely that you're going to be able to study other things and be open to study other things even when there's you know a certain degree of difficulty that you're encountering mm-hmm. yeah that, we learned that one in my uh, coaching when someone comes and says that they're struggling with something it's always important to ask what they're good at and do more of what they're good at because doing more of what you're naturally good at or you excel at will increase the, right. the, the at least the, the chances of you doing better at what you're not doing so great now um, because success will always breathe more success whereas constantly feeling failure will never... It's right. just you don't even want to try again if you know that you're already going to fail. Right. I mean, so we know in science <coughs> from you know, neurological uh, studies, that it's, it's really chemically true. It's just, it's, it's, it's like a fact of life. It's like people will revolve and, um, around those things that just make them feel better. And it's, it's so crucial that children feel that way about their learning. Now, I know there are, all, you know, this is not new, you know, you can talk to any serious educator, no matter where, what camp they're from, they know this, but their idea of trying to create like a geschmack is not really the kid's idea of what it, it is to have a geschmack. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You can give them a candy, but the candy's going to last maybe a year or two. When, when they're in third grade, the candy doesn't really mean much. And if you don't 
really care about the, ch the children, you know, really, really care about them and really, really foster their self-esteem and, and their ability to feel that they're accomplishing, they're, it's just going to go the way the, the, the statistics are saying. So that's, that's uh, you know, wrapping up that other point that I just feel that it's to say that I, you know, XYZ person wants to develop this system, that it's just religious instruction, fine. But to, to preclude the possibility from others, I think is a crime. It's a crime because it's so anti-educational. It's like it's not pardonable. It's just you're closing the doors from many other children that would thrive in their lives, right? And when they have no answer to what it is that they're good at or that they've done well at in their entire you know, education, what chances are they going to have to build a life in general? Right. You have a whole generation of kids feeling like they're not good at anything. Yeah, it's a, handy, it's a tremendous handicap that, that can never, it's, it's, like I said, it can never be ignored and on the contrary. I think it's a crime, especially to prevent other people from doing something like that. That's the second to last point. The, other, the last point I want to say is like as a more of a social observation um, that I also believe to be true. And it's something I actually read when I was a teenager in, uh, in university from a playwright whose name was George Bernard Shaw. And at that point, it like struck me as being like a very interesting, wild idea that I never thought of. But it's the issue of poverty. How we... Um, what are our attitudes towards poverty, right? Mm -hmm. so, so the reason why I'm bringing it up is because there was a very poignant, I think important article from one of the spokesmen of the Haredi world that said, basically, I hear what you're saying, that the kids are, have less options for how to make a living and therefore they're living poorly, but we choose poverty. We choose it as a value. We choose Meaning poverty as a value. Valuing the life of um, frugality. Well, you can be frugal and be rich, but the point is. Um, Asceticism. Asceticism. Okay. Being an ascetic. Ascetic. But the point is, is that um, it, there's everything is has to do with balance, of course. But to say we choose poverty is like creating a system again which I think is anti-educational, and saying, like, everyone, it's hard, but just get used to it. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Choose poverty together with us, and you'll be much better off in the end. Who says? Who says? And, and on the contrary, I think that, and this is my broad critique, I think socially, this is my experience, I feel that George Bernard Shaw, what he said was right, <clears throat> now, of course, he was talking about a Christian world, and he the overtones of what he was saying was really targeted at the Christian world, because the Christian world also kind of glorifies poverty, mm -hmm. as if like you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, like, or like you know, like the the idea of like saints, like we discussed in a couple of podcasts before, like the saint who has nothing, who lives with very right. little, who's happy with nothing. Right. Now. Um, what 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 was basically brought out by Shaw, which is is basically what I'm echoing here, but in a different context and a little bit different spin, is that the glorification of poverty ignores all of the downsides of poverty, and the downsides of poverty are not just what you think it they are, which is difficulty in scraping together a living and putting food on the table, but it's also what it does to your mind. What it does to your mind. 
And in our context, I feel that because um, on one hand, you don't have an education that's very, uh, you have an education that very often is falling short from inspiring the children to understand what it is that they're living and why they're living it, right? It's not allowing them the feeling of expression to understand what it is that they're doing and how they're good at it or how they've been good at it or how they've excelled at it, right? So basically you're dealing with people that are just kind of like walking in a path because they generally speaking feel it's correct. What I feel that that does, along with the fact that they're also living poorly and watching all the difficulties of their wife having to work long hours and they want to have large families and that's just a recipe for small-mindedness. Right. And I, and I, and I ha- hate to say it, I hate to say it, but I think that's what it's, it's really killing our society because your spectrum of what to expect in life all of a sudden becomes so reduced that you just don't dream about anything anymore. In other words, even your religious life you stop dreaming about because it's just about making ends meet, which is the most pressing reality that you have on your head. And for many, many people, except for the select few who are, like I said, you know, truly inspired to follow the path that they're following, when you're talking about people who are being honest with themselves and are maybe trying to force themselves into that feeling, but they don't have that feeling, they become small-minded. And they do more of the things that people do in ambivalent societies, where it's just like, you know, we can't talk about that, we can't talk about that, so therefore your small-mindedness will say, well, therefore you can't do it at all, it's prohibited and you can't do this, and, you, then, and then they become more and more strict and like they, they feel that they need to do something to excel at, so they need to follow their very strict normative path, normative path in a way that's like even more and more extreme. It creates an extremist approach, which is very small-minded. And then you get cults. Yeah, and it's not based on anything, really. It's just based on their own need to feel that they're somebody. That's the extreme. But I'm, ta- I'm not even talking about the extreme so much. I'm just talking about people that I meet every day. Just like their she'ifot. Like, what about Gadlut Torah that they so much talk about in yeshivot, in our yeshivot, anyway, in America? So when I can say to myself that when the Rosh Hashiva would get up and talk about you know greatness in Torah... You have to know what an idea, what it is to be great in general. Right. I mean, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna sound like really, a little bit, you know, I, I guess in in the context of this conversation, in the context of you know the people that we're talking about, I'm gonna sound like really, you know, risque when I say this, but like, maybe it's even better to know what what a person looks like when they're great at basketball. To know what it means to be great, if you never experience greatness. People will say, who's the great people for the Haredi society? Well, the Gedolim, right? Gedolim who are actually unbelievable people who really were able to, to because, either because they were gifted or because they were gifted emotionally or because gifted intellectually or they just really worked on themselves hard or a mix of everything that allowed them to have this uni-focus on the importance of studying Torah and the greatness of Torah, and they really grew and became luminaries, right? So those are the great people. Okay, so can children associate with that? Can they relate to that? 
can children relate to that greatness? You're going to tell me, well, yeah, of course. I mean, they're in it all day. So, of course, they relate to the greatness. I posit here that no. I posit that on a large scale. I don't think they know what that greatness is because whatever you're describing about their greatness is really not what their greatness is. And that's an unfortunate story of the, you know, the art scroll, whitewash books. I'm just using art scroll as an example. But the books that whitewash the lives and the struggles of real luminaries, real gedolim. Does that helps you know in this piece? Unfortunately, to create this like totally unreachable, totally untouchable. Right, they become the untouchables. Right now, what what's the difference with what I'm saying? It's like, if I play basketball as a kid, I like basketball. Nobody can talk me out of the fact that I like basketball, right? And I see a, some guy who I don't want to I don't want to emulate in my life at all, except for the fact that he's great at basketball. I can feel intuitively what it took for him to do that. Right? He just doesn't come out throwing that ball into that basket. And naturally, he had, you know, it's hours and hours of practice since he's a kid. And I get the feeling of like, I get a glimpse of what it means to be great at something. Right? And then if somebody says to me to be great in Torah, so I also have like an idea of like what it means to be great mm-hmm. through that. Because you can like transpose... Yeah, because I've seen greatness to, in, in a way that is meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. But, but if you have a child and you just assume a lot of stuff, parents are non-communicative, the schools are non-communicative, the kid's just doing, struggling, trying to figure out, you know, just studying for tests, listening, thing. there's no context, there's very little explanation. It doesn't become his, what it is that he's doing. He's just doing it. And they say, the greatness, and you should be great, you know, I just feel that in general, the more important part of their life is going to make them small, not great. The more important part of the life is like when they go home at night, they, they open the refrigerator, there's no food there. And they know that their friends, some of their friends are going out and eating out, and some, you know, so they just feel lacking. And for what? Mm-hmm. So when well, poverty, what it does essentially, unless you have an overriding, inspiring ideology, it makes you small-minded. Which is basically what he was saying in his play. It's called Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if called Santa Barbara or some, San Barbara or something like that. That, you know, the one of the figures is like making fun, not making fun, but poking, you know, cr- criticism at this poor fellow who was like trying to sh- sell the virtue of him being poor. And he was saying, you're, there's no virtue of you being poor. You're just you just have a different set of struggles, but there's no there's nothing virtuous about it. You just the dreg of society. People think that you're nothing. You can think you're everything, but you what what, what makes it virtuous? Mm-hmm. Right? right. The only thing that could make it virtuous is if you could take your poverty and turn it into something holy for a higher reason. Right. The same reason by the, by the same token, you can take your wealth or your, what, your, whatever wealth you have, and you can turn it into something holy too. Right. So I'm saying, to, so therefore, to like condemn, so to speak, an entire society to live poorly and live on the good graces of governments and individuals so that people can survive. And at this point, they're not really good graces either. <laughs> well, certainly not by the government. I mean, the government just, mm. you know, there's not you know, money doesn't grow on trees, so they have to make very difficult decisions. 
And the people more and more are saying, look, we're not, we don't want to feed a part of society that could easily make a decision to be self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. It's one thing if a person falls in bad times. So the Israeli government, like you know, our, your grandfather always says, is the greatest single source of uh, charity in the world. I mean, it's the greatest, the saying goes, it's the biggest belt stucca. Right? It's giving tzedakah all day for, for Jews all around the world and in Israel for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's only the pie is only so big. So, you know, this population explosion and the turning of Israeli society into more and more of a religious society is just making people think twice and saying, look, we can't do this. We can't continue to do this. And I think it comes from a legitimate concern. It's actually interesting. I just got this like little like oh, um, what you were describing before as like poverty and small mindedness. In my mind, I also have a scarcity, like this feeling like there's not enough. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like as more and more resources get funneled into what we perceive to be a black hole, because there's no returns and it's constantly growing, right? When we talk about like when there's these. unfortunate but somewhat true connotations of Haredi society being like these the leeches of society because they take and take and there's no there's no give back in terms of contributions to but that's not fair society it's not fair because yes they do contribute but I I just not going to go all the way into that but I'm saying the term exists and there it is a perceived notion and I think it's interesting to notice how from um from the actual ranks of Haredim who are living this um, small-mindedness, I think it also does leak out to the rest, to the to greater Israel, you can say, because then the other people start also feeling this lack, like, we don't have enough money to give them all the time, and, and we don't have enough, and, and then and everyone else then also starts living a little bit in this scarcity, because it's a li- I would say that it's contagious that way. If someone is living in scarcity, and it's not enough and not enough, and then bring other people into supporting that not enoughness then there's not enough for everybody and you like you said there's there's only that much the pie then there's people living in Israeli society who aren't in the Haredi sector who are also feeling like there's not enough because we live in a country that needs to support people like this and I'm not making enough either and how my taxes are going to go there and it, it, it festers like it, the it like yeah it just festers I think also not just in the Haredi community, but also in the race, in the rest of Israel, also this feeling of scarcity and small-mindedness also. I don't think it just stays there. Well, I hear. But I think that's also the, just a, a product of the fact that it's true, because there is a small pie. It's a small country. There's not a great, um, big enough economy um, that that's, uh, can, can, can afford all these things. So, the, you know... They're constantly talking about it. it's a small, you know, in a small country. When you hear that you know, the government's making this decision, that decision impacts your life like directly. It's not like in America where the trickle down, you know, until you feel it could be a couple of years. Mm. So there is a lot of talk. It's like when parents in a home will talk about scarcity, they'll talk about that there's not enough, there's not enough. So then the kids can develop that sense that there's just not enough. Right. It doesn't mean you need to lie. <laughs> It doesn't mean to say there's always, you know, money's growing on trees, but, you know, it depends how you talk about it. You'd say, like, you know, thank God there's everybody has whatever they need. 
and will have. You know, well, let's see how we can wisely divide divide up our resources. Mm. That's best for everyone. You know, that part is also very important. But again, it's not fair to say that there's no there's no contribution. First of all, from a religious perspective, religious people feel that they're giving the greatest contribution, which is right. the study of Torah. Now, <clears throat> in my words. I don't like using it that way because it sounds so cliche and a lot of times people associate it with people that aren't really giving a contribution because what is their contribution? Mm. But There's also the concept of like Torah snobbery though, like the people who learn but they don't teach, they don't give it over to anyone else, so who are you learning for? Right, so, so that's what I'm saying. So let's assume for a moment that the contribution is at the least, at the least level is that you're talking about People who live in the society who are, let's say, uh, illuminated by the life of the Torah. Okay? Now, okay, I know what your face is, but that's exactly the critique. That means that you better, you know, be that person who, in a, in a, in a larger society, especially to your own people who you feel kinship to, you should be going out of your way to show that Torah lifestyle in a big way. Right? It should be the most considerate place in the world where all of the people who feel this kinship to each other live, where people feel, you know, uh, taken care of and loved and cherished and, and, and you know, respected. respected and things like that. And, and however you want to translate that what the principles of the Torah would be, they should be most reflected in those places, right? Now, if you tell me that they're not... Uh, yeah. it's a hard sell to say that there are so then what again is the contribution so you're going to say well there's, there's no you know on a very minimal level if you go to a, like a horrible neighborhood where there's stealing and fornication <laughs> you know and adultery and other things that eat away at society okay and you compare that to us okay so then you'll say okay but as a society that's as a still whole, not a contribution because they got their self there to begin with so what are you contributing what? You're saying the contribution meaning that at least they're not as depraved as someone else who could be in their situation. Well, you got yourself in that situation. So what are you contributing? I don't understand that argument. No, it just means that in a society, if I had to pick a society, I would want to pick a society of people that don't get to the depraved parts of the depraved behaviors. That's what I'm saying. And therefore, you generally speaking are better off in, as far as that goes in a, in a society of people that are dedicating their lives to the study of Torah because by and large on a great scale you're going to have much more law-abiding citizens in the great sense of the word you know what I'm saying they're not they're not doing depraved things you know what I'm saying generally speaking you're going to have your exceptions but there are much more exceptions now to actually make a study about that and show that a non you know you'll say well you'll have law-abiding systems in, in general the same but but what's going on behind the scenes? Like, how are their kids being raised? You know, how are how are the sexual mores in those societies? So, okay, so then that becomes what we can consider a contribution to society. I'm very, you know, confident to say that that is a contribution to society. It's passive. It's kind of passive. But it is something. You know, it's something. I just don't see it that but, much as a contribution because you're saying... It's a passive contribution. It's, it's being not a certain even. way. It's, you got yourself into a situation. Well, what do you mean you got yourself into a situation? 
Because you're glorifying poverty. You're not educating no, your children. You're not making just... any money. So you're poor. You live in a very bad conditions. And you're saying most people who live in very bad conditions who are very poor would do depraved things. No. You're not, not saying that. No, I'm not talking about poverty anymore. I'm just saying that in general, the contribution of a society that is aiming um, to create religious study as the maxim, the, the, the expression of human life and, and, and striving, um, even in face of all the other pitfalls that in today's day and age it does create and the problems that it creates for society, they are at least, for sure, contributing to society the aspect of a certain amount of moral life that's much more pervasive in those societies as opposed to the general society. That I don't think anybody can disagree on. That's fine, but I wouldn't attribute that to the Haredi circles. I would say also Datilomi or modern Orthodox. I'm saying there's people who are learning. I don't think that's an exclusively Haredi... <laughs> You're doing that, I'm going to eat a grape. <laughs> um, it's not like an exclusively Haredi benefit factor. I was going to say, I thought you were going to say that how there's so many Haredi Chesed organizations. They Well, I was going to get to that. I would say that's the biggest contribution. I, I, was gonna get I don't to that. see the rest. I was going to the bottom, bottom, bottom line. And, okay, you're, that's a good point. The point is taken is that truth is anybody who lives a religious life they don't have to be Haredi in order to be a decent Because you're living by moral society. Tenets. Right, exactly. 100%. I agree with that. Yeah. So are you, are you going to say that there's more of an incidence of, like, um, you know, uh, social action uh, efforts in Haredi society more than, you know, Dati society? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know about that. I don't know if there are more, but I know that I just there think is the need is greater. <laughs> so if, if down the block, if you look up and down the block in, uh, I don't know, Alon Shvut, and everyone's making a living, so yeah, of course, there's going to be less chesed societies in that, in, that, uh, in that block than there will be in a Haredi neighborhood where, you know, 20% of the people on the block are almost starving. Hmm. You know, with issues, with too many this, with kids that they can't uh, provide for, you know, for one way or another, with needs. Yeah, so of course there's going to be more, you know, chesed organizations. question is, are those chesed organizations only internal, or are they also external for the rest of society? Ah, no, that would be How many great. people does it benefit outside of the Haredi system? So that would be more of a question, if you really want to look at it. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I think that the government does recognize it, that because there are, you know, there are a lot of big organizations that do you know, spread the net very widely, so they appreciate that fact. All right, anyway, this isn't a broadside about any particular society. It's basically trying to think openly and clearly about things, which is what we're trying to do. And um, the three points of Haredi education that really need to be scrutinized is why can't it be a live and let live? Which is, if you believe something for is good for your society, okay, so live it and do it as best as you can. But don't cancel somebody else's option. The only, the only reason why those people would you know, believe that is because either they're either, either very insecure and afraid of their own position so that they don't want their kids or constituents to be exposed to another system that might be better or it might work better, or it might look better, because they're afraid that their position is going to get weakened. So that, of course, is ridiculous. It's not ridiculous, but it's it's pitiful, right? That's not something we would want to promote. Uh, and, the, and the better way of looking at it is that there's like this pan, like I said, this pan overlooking 
uh, way of, uh, of, uh, of treating and dealing with Israeli society that you, you realize that what we want and what we feel strongly about is really what should be as most pervasive as possible in society. So therefore, we, do, we don't want other systems to really thrive because we feel that in the end, that's not going to be good for a society. What? So that what? I'm just laughing at the fact that you keep saying pan. I'm wondering whoever used pan and that's like people think you're just like the pan. Peter. Like, but it's actually as you're saying that I'm thinking of like, oh that kind of sounds which is funny because I think we would consider like Haredi to be like very I don't even know politically, I don't know that much, but like let's say you were to say that they're very like right wing conservative and whatever. But then it's like kind of, it's so similar to like the hypocrisy of the left where tolerance and accept until we cancel you because you're not agreeing with our decisions or with what we think. It just doesn't fly anymore today. I mean, people are very resentful to that type of attitude. Basically, who are, who are you to tell me how to live? You know? Which it's fine, but then, but it's, they don't tell me how to live until what you're doing bothers me. In that case, I'll cancel you. Yeah. So that the, really the live and let live value isn't really present in either of those extremes. In general, when people take extremist things, they, they're, um, they realize that being an extreme is lonely. <laughs> and if you don't lord on everybody else, then you're going to find that your position is just what it is, an extreme position. So if you want to be, you know, lord over everybody, make sure that you feel good about your position. So you try to silence others. Look, it's always a sign of weakness, mm. and it's just unfortunate. And you know, the more and more time goes on, the more and more it becomes so so ridiculous. You know, up to the point where this, uh, you know, this interview that I had yesterday with the television, the interview was also like, find a way to get into people's minds that this is already like it's the, the, it's over. I'm <laughs> saying that war is over. I try to use the word in Hebrew, a point of inflection. I th I feel that we've gotten to a point of inflection where it's not. It's like that was yesterday's battles. You know what I'm saying? Like at this point, we're so over it. <laughs> yeah, it's like secular education is the thing. You know, now it's just something to be mikdash, just like anything else in life, where it's it's not, it's not this, it's not that. So it's, what are you going to do with it? If you want to sanctify it to give it higher purpose, go right ahead. That's the, our purpose in life. Make it more than what it is. Give it more reason, more more spiritual punch, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So reason number two, because we kind of branded off there. Uh, live and let live, number two. Number two is that, uh, that Haredi education, um, I think, is anti-educational. Because it's very monotonous. It doesn't, it's not broad. It doesn't invite for people to explore like I said, things not, that they're not good by, at, not other options. Se, but not per se. And there's, it, could, it could be educational. But it's not. But the way it's being done. The way isn't. it's being done is not. In other words, it doesn't offer children a way to feel that they're thriving. And whenever you go into schools and you ask the, the, the teachers and the, the, you know, the educators there if they feel that it, it's happening, they'll tell you that it is happening with ways that are totally antiquated, like candies and right. silly, you know, very infantile ways <laughs> to, to... Very infantile ways to almost cow you know, students into believing a certain thing and kids are just much more exposed and they realize that they're just being um, shown very few ways of how to get ahead in their education and they realize that they have much more to offer and they're not getting it done 
they're not getting it, they're not feeling it. The parents are starting to realize that uh, their kids are miserable. And so the parents and, and, and children are looking for other options where they can, you know, excel at something. Right. It's also very elitist. I mean, the, the system... Yeah, no, it's very elitist. Like the religious <laughs> society is like already, it's become competitive in that sense. Like who's the best learner? It's very competitive society as it is. So when it becomes translated into religious instruction, you're dealing with 60-70% of the kids right off the bat. They're not going to compete. Mm-hmm. They just want to feel that they're good at something. They're not going to compete. So if they can't compete, they're, not, they're really not going to feel that they're really good at it until they become the best. Right. So you just you know limited your ability to make kids feel good about their education in a, in a drastic way. And the last point we're making is that the, the, our critique is that uh, Haredi society is creating poverty, and poverty creates small-mindedness. Which in itself is self-defeating. So if the value in a Haredi system is to be great in Torah, even that which is the exactly. principal value is being defeated by the fact that you're not creating a society that can really cultivate that. That can look, you know, that can dream big. Yeah. Mm. Potente... Potent. <laughs> As they say. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get back to my grapes. <laughs> Adios. And that's a wrap, my friends. We hope that our conversation inspired you and gave you something to chew on. Please send us your feedback, questions, comments, topics you'd be interested in discussing, and even triggers so we can generate more relevant and meaningful conversation. You can contact us at fdhp.feedback at gmail.com. And we are wishing you a blessed week, and we'll catch you next time. All right, so we are here for another episode of the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. We're super excited to be here with you, um, and I am as much hot. You were about to say, I don't know what the heck I'm going with. Where am I going? Another grape.